This program is a production of the Reformed Forum, online at reformedforum.org. This is Christ the Center, episode number 52. Today we speak with Vern Poitras about redeeming science. Welcome to Christ the Center, Doctrine for Life, a weekly conversation of Reformed Theology. My name is Camden Busey, and I have alongside me today James Dalzell, who's a Ph.D. student, hopefully soon to be Ph.D. candidate at Westminster Theological Seminary. Good morning, James. We also have Jim Cassidy, who is pastor at Calvary Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Ringo's, New Jersey. How are you doing today, Jim? Well, Camden, yourself. Good, good. It's a little bit different. You're calling in actually from... uh, from home today, aren't you? Yeah, that's right. I'm, I'm actually in my office. <laughs> you today. sound a little different, right? We also have Nick Batzig, who's church planter in uh, Richmond Hills, Georgia. Uh, how are you doing, Jim? Uh, Nick? I'm doing good. <laughs> it's good to have you. And our special guest today is Dr. Vern Poitras, who is professor of New Testament at Westminster Theological Seminary. He's written several books, including Redeeming Science, the one we're going to be speaking about today, which is a book uh, focused on a God-centered approach to the scientific discipline. Good morning, Dr. Poitras. It's a pleasure to have you with us. Good morning. Thanks for inviting me. We're extremely uh, privileged today to, to talk to Dr. Poitras and just to look at science from an Orthodox Christian approach, even a Vantillian position, and we're, we're interested to, to speak with him and ask him several questions that we hope are going to be very helpful to our listeners. But first, we wanted to stop, of course, and mention any book news or conferences. I know there's a conference going on this weekend at uh, Westminster West. Uh, Nick, do you have the details on that at all? Um, well, what I do is on the blog on Feeding on Christ. Mm-hmm. Listeners can go, and I think about three or four posts back, there's a a post. I know that Scott Clark's going to be um, doing live blogging through it, um, and I know it's a Calvin conference, and that's that's the extent of what I know about it. Yeah, that uh, they're they're uh, focusing on Calvin uh, as many people are going to be doing this year, given that it's the quincentenary of his birth. Uh, he's going to be live blogging that. If you check the post, we have the link to the RSS feed. As well, you'll be able to follow along and see what's going on at the conference. We, we should also mention that um, the book we're discussing today, Redeeming Science, is um, online. There's a PDF copy, I think, at the Frame Poitras website. So our listeners might be interested to know they can um, get an electronic copy that way. Right. Is there any other news before we get started today? I think that's it. That's, that's all I got. Well, Dr. Poitras, you came out with this book, Redeeming Science, A God-Centered Approach, a few years ago, and I remember picking it up even before I came to seminary and reading through it, and I was just very encouraged and refreshed uh, by by the approach to the scientific discipline. Now, it, it has been something that has uh, tripped many people up. A lot of times people set up a dichotomy between faith and and science, and how how do you go about addressing that for people who th- who either feel they have to be a scientist with the with the entire materialistic worldview that goes along with that, oftentimes, versus being a person of faith and uh, believing in the supernatural? How do you address those that dialectic or that dichotomy? Well, there's two things at least to be said. One, the primary one, is that the Bible itself 
gives us knowledge not only of God but of who we are in God's world. And what I'm endeavoring to do in this book is primarily to fit modern science into, as it were, the pages of the Bible, into the Bible's uh, exposition of who we are and where we're going and what God's purposes are. And once you do that, I think you can see science in a very positive way, though prior to, uh, subsequent to the fall, uh, science, like all things that are part of the created order, is subject to perversion, and human beings will twist uh, any kind of knowledge that they have uh, because of their rebellion against God. So science has become an ambivalent and even a hostile thing in some people's minds because of the way in which uh, we as fallen creatures have proceeded to do our science. But in common grace, uh, there is much blessing that has come even out of the work of unbelieving scientists. That's number one of saying you look at the Bible and understand how science fits into that. Uh, the number two part is a historical part, and that is that science, as we know it in the Western world, originated in a context that was dominated by a Christian worldview. Many of the early scientists, like Copernicus and Galileo, were believing Christians, uh, Isaac Newton, Sir Isaac Newton as well. Uh, even the ones who had more questionable theologies themselves personally were living in an atmosphere that assumed there was one God. I mean, we take that for granted often as Christians, but it, it wasn't something that could be taken for granted in the world of the Old Testament. You, Israel is constantly struggling against polytheistic temptations. Right. A world in which there are many gods is a world that's chaotic where it doesn't make sense to expect that you could do science. Mm. So there's things like that. Well, the second thing about a Christian worldview is that human beings are created in the image of God. And that means that there is uh, the possibility and even the expectancy that we can understand something of the mind of God. And that encouraged the early scientists, actually, in their work, that they were convinced that they were pursuing something uh, that would show something of the beauty of God. So that was, uh, that's something that can be encouraging, I think, as we look back historically. But it is true that over the past couple of centuries in particular, science has become much more secularized and people have uh, proceeded to uh, reinterpret the work of science in uh, a context and a worldview that proposes to eliminate a personal God. And that, that's what, uh, part of what causes the problem. There's obviously particular issues with the days of creation and with Darwinian evolution, and those uh, issues always come up. And I do address them, as you know, in the book. But my primary purpose was not that, because uh, there are other books that do that. Some do it well, some do it not so well. But, but what I wanted to s people to understand was the entire worldview that the Bible presents and how uh, science, as it ought to be, has a positive role. Right.
And one thing you speak about um, initially is the divine attributes, and and you talk about why scientists should believe in God. How do the divine attributes, as Orthodox Christians know them, how does an Orthodox doctrine of God really provide the necessary foundation for doing science? Well, it does because, again, within a biblical worldview, God rules the world by speaking. Uh, That's true of the creation. God said, let there be light, and there was light. But it's also true of providence. Uh, There are passages, for instance, he sends forth his word and melts them in Psalm 147, speaking about the ice and snow, that by his word he commands the ordinary providential actions of the weather and of the growing of grass and so on. Now, if God rules the world by his word, then what scientists are after when they're talking about scientific law, what they're after is really an examination of the word of God. Not the word of God in scripture, that's the written word of God, but the word of God governing in his providence, governing the whole universe. And uh, the word of God, whether it's in scripture or whether it's uh, the word of providence, is what God says and therefore has divine attributes. So actually, scientists presuppose that many of them don't realize it consciously, but they presuppose that scientific law that they're investigating and trying to discover has the attributes that are associated with the God of the Bible. Could you give an example of that for us? Uh, Just as we, you give some examples in your first chapter about uh, assumptions. You even make reference, I think, to Greg Bonson's dissertation on self-deception, of how there's these second-order commitments that don't align with the first-order commitments of scientists. Could you give us a, an example from a scientific discipline where where that's the case? Well, let's take uh, Newton's law of gravitation. Uh, just pull that out of the air, and uh, we all expect that gravity will work and you expose yourself to death if you jump off a high building and think that you can violate the law of gravity. So that that law is there and uh, scientists who think more rigorously about it believe that it is there in all places and all times. A law that would change would actually not be the deepest law, but you'd look for an explanation for the what generates the changes. So scientists uh, show by the way they investigate the world that they believe that the laws that they're after, both the laws they've already discovered and those to be discovered, are true of all times and all places. Well, those two attributes are attributes of God the classical terminology is omnipresence, all places, and eternality, all times. So those are attributes of God. Uh, The reason, the way that people get around that usually is to think of scientific law as just impersonal. People do believe that it's virtually eternal and uh, omnipresent, but they think of it as an impersonal mechanism. But, uh, but in fact, uh, law is rational, 
And you see, the early scientists, they were motivated by that. They thought, we can understand something of the mind of God because our minds uh, are created with a rationality that's the image of God's rationality. We have a hope of understanding the way in which God governs the world. Without that conviction that human persons are related to the rationality of the divine person, there's no reason, there's no grounding for confidence that you could understand a law if it exists or that it would be rational. When you, when you describe laws as rational, uh, you don't mean simply to say that they're, that they're uh, understandable or accessible to our minds, but you're saying something about the origin of laws, right? I mean, you're, speaking, you're saying that the laws have uh, their origin uh, or point of departure in, in a mind, in a personal mind. That's what I'm saying. Uh, scientists instinctively know, whether their philosophy denies it or not, that they discover the laws rather than invent them. That is, the laws, the real laws are already there. And the scientist's formulation is derivative from the real law. So he has to have a conception of the real law before he discovers it to motivate him to get to it and to know what kind of law to look at. And that's where the, this confidence in rationality. Rationality, if you think about it, belongs not to stones and not to worms, but to human beings, to persons, you see. And that shows to believe that the law is, is rational is to believe that it originates in a person. Dr. Poitras, you have a section in your book where you talk about authority. I think it's called Whose Authority? And you obviously are taking a very Vantillian approach um, in your worldview in this book. Um, and in Van Til, I know one of the arguments that he uses, and I think it's excellent, is that when he's um, dealing with unbelievers that are trying to structure reality um, through, you know, empirical evidence or their own, you know, just on their own, on their own authority, he makes the point you would have to know everything infinitely in order to say that the infinite God doesn't exist, and you'd have to know everything um, infinitely to know truth I guess truly would, if that's a correct way of presenting it. My my question is, in regard to science, if we if we do approach science from a biblical worldview, as you've been speaking about, um, couldn't someone raise the? Couldn't someone say, well, we can't be sure of anything in general revelation because we don't know everything and we haven't lived long enough and we haven't experienced. Um, laws in every setting in relationship to everything. How would you answer someone that came to you on a very hyper-conservative side saying, well, we just can't be sure about scientific laws um, and, and things that are not revealed in Scripture? Right. Well, I think that the positive aspect of what they're saying touches on human finiteness, that in fact, we don't know everything to the bottom. And that's illustrated by the kind of surprises that turn up within the history of science, that people thought that they had their act together, so to speak, with Newtonian physics. And then uh, Einstein and the theory of relativity came along, quantum theory came along in the 20th century, both of which uh, deeply reconfigured the uh, thinking that was there in Newton. Well, 
to me, that just says uh, we, the mind of God is infinitely deep. We can, we can never kind of rest on our laurels and say, well, now we've mastered everything and we understand everything to the very bottom. That's, in fact, it's true of Scripture itself because Scripture is always deeper than our finite understanding of it. And, and, but we believe that God has created the world with Scripture as our special revelation in such a way that we can understand it. Right. Not with the infallibility of God's own understanding, but as we listen humbly and as we confess our dependence on God, then God leads us and we understand it sufficiently to get along in this world. Well, on a derivative level, I think the same thing holds for general revelation. That is, God has put us in a world so that we can identify the difference between trees and cows and horses. And the Israelites, we think of it, had to do that, right, and in order to know right. what kind of animals they could eat. Yeah, mm-hmm. God's put us in a world where we can apply Scripture because we, understand, we can identify in the world the kind of things that Scripture is talking about. So, Van Til actually, in his introduction to systematic theology, discusses general revelation and special revelation in a marvelously coherent way that shows their coherence, rather than trying to, to, uh, to mainly major on the problems to show that God has created a situation where we can understand. Right. I think that is always an understanding that that is in humility and in finiteness, but with the confidence that God knows what he's doing and that he's giving us enough information so that we can conduct our lives. And if you think about it, we're constantly dependent on general revelation in various ways. I illustrated it with leaping off of tall buildings. We have to know not to do that. How do we know not to do that? It's not because the Bible directly tells us, but because, well, it does tell us to be careful for life, right, in the uh, Sixth Commandment, but then we have to apply that to a situation where we know that there's a law of gravity and figure it out, and our own bodily balance system warns us, you know, people get queasy (laughs) on heights, and that's a really good thing that God has made, but it's a matter of general revelation. Yeah. So, but there's, there's other illustrations that are more pertinent, for instance, with taking pills, uh, taking medications. Wow, that can be a really dangerous thing because uh, do, how do you know you're not taking poison? Well, you, you, it's an accumulation from general revelation, not infallible, right? And doctors sometimes make mistakes, but... We, are, we should be very grateful and see that as part of God's blessing in the age that we live in, that we've got uh, an understanding derived uh, from general revelation primarily about disease and about uh, drugs and so on, their interaction with the body, and we benefit from that, but not with an infallible knowledge. I have a, a question leaping off of the first chapter um, where you open up you open up your book uh, in a wonderfully provocative way. All scientists, including agnostics and atheists, believe in God. They have to in order to do their work. 
Um, I mean, that's that jumps off the page as being a um, uh, a distinctly Vantilian <laughs> opening, uh, where the preconditions for all knowledge are found within God's uh, revelation, a bridging of the gap, as it were, between God's um, uh, uncreatedness and and then, of course, His uh, creation itself. But um, I have a question concerning the relationship then between science and religion. Um, as you know, there's there's at least three camps that are out there. Those who say, um, you know, I'm a scientist and my science has something to say about your religion. And what my science has to say about your religion is that it's false. My science tells me that your God doesn't exist. And then there's the opposite side, which says, well, my religion tells me that your science doesn't exist. Um, that would be the kind of the hyper-conservative fundamentalist side. Um, and then you have um, uh, another uh, one in the middle of those two that says, well, you know, let, let, let's – and this is really where my question is leading. Um, let's keep the two disciplines – absolutely distinct and separate from one another if we if we do that let the scientist be a scientist let the theologian be a theologian and the twain shall not meet uh then we could kind of all get along advance our own respective um disciplines and so my question would be what are the potential um pitfalls of importing scientific principles into the study of religion as well as what would be the potential pitfalls of um importing religious uh, principles or theological principles into the discipline of science. Um, see my question there? I'm, I'm kind of getting at, you know, the where these two disciplines can oftentimes step on each other's toes. Would it be more safe to just kind of keep uh, separate and distinct from one another? Right. It's a good question, Jim. And I think that it is uh, popular in some circumstances. Uh, in some circles, to do to argue just that way that it, you have airtight compartments that don't mix, and that seems safe to some people, as you observe, but it's ultimately unworkable. Uh, I'm an interactionist that says you ought to have vigorous interaction between the two areas because general and special revelation are meant by God himself to work together. But if you're going to have that interaction, then you're going to make mistakes. Uh, and there's going to be tensions in the short run. I believe that God is in harmony with himself so that in the long run, uh, we are helped by knowing what we know about the Bible. We're helped to do science and vice versa that we're helped by general revelation as a whole in, uh, to deepen our, our understanding and, above all, our application of Scripture. So I don't think there's a threat, ultimately, because of the unity of God. There's no threat there. But many people feel as if there's a threat. And if I may address this um, airtight compartments view, why it won't work. It won't work because... Everybody who does science presupposes a conception of scientific law. And that's either a Christian conception guided by knowledge of God, or it's an idolatrous conception that tries to replace the true God because it's God speaking that we're talking about. That's the origin of law, you see. Mm. And if you don't have the 
true God in your mind as you're thinking about law, then you have a counterfeit, usually a counterfeit in the form of impersonal law. But that's idolatrous. That's not neutral. That's not uh, rigorously uh, fair to the evidence. It's false religion. And so that is not a solution at all. And part of my point in the title of my book, Redeeming Science, is that we need Christ to come back to a true and robust knowledge of God. And it's only that true and robust knowledge of God that puts science on a proper footing. So in in this, you talk about uh, the ideology of objectivity, and you've just spoken about the, the impossibility of of agnostics uh, being objective with the with the data it's not true to the facts uh, as you've mentioned what what's wrong with the ideology of objectivity and what should we seek instead yes well what's wrong with it is it's idolatry because it presupposes an impersonalist an impersonalist alternative to the true god but i'm a little nervous about Uh, the word objectivity, because I think there is a true objectivity in knowing God. Uh, God himself has the ultimately objective view of everything, because his knowledge is perfect and exhaustive. At the same time, it's completely subjective, that is, it's completely personal. So I think that, you know, the normal polarities between subjectivity and objectivity don't work for God himself. And in effect, God is the ultimate reconciliation of what seem to be polarities, you know, that philosophers generate. But if that's true of God, it's derivatively true of us as human beings. In knowing God, we know God who really is, and our knowledge is genuine and true. That is, quote, objective. At the same time, it's deeply subjective. That is, it's meant to be written on our hearts. It's meant to be appropriated personally. And you see this personalist view of the world, right, that God is an absolute person, means that the subjectivity of being a person and the objectivity of truth cohere, that you don't need to make them fight against one another. Cohere in God. Yes, and then derivatively in human beings, that we're, as we grow in knowing Christ, we become harmonious creatures ourselves. We, do, we, we uh, don't any longer feel the tension between our personal subjective involvement and the objectivity of truth. Because in knowing God, we have both of those coming together. God made us as persons, right? And he made the world and the truth of the world. And those things cohere, and we we can have confidence that they do. Now, that doesn't mean there aren't struggles. And again, you talk about the finiteness, right, of saying, and overcoming sin as well. There will be struggles from time to time because we don't see to the bottom, and things can look like they have tensions and that there are... uh, There are ongoing problems, as people know, between Bible and science and those sorts of things. But I think those problems need to be approached with the confidence that God is God and that he's made the world, which we investigate scientifically, and he's made us as human beings, and he's spoken to us in Scripture, and all those things are in intrinsic harmony. 
Now, you do speak about, of course, God making the world, and you spend much time in the book on creation and different uh, theories on the age of the earth and different creation views. This is a really interesting uh, subject, and there's much debate even within the Christian world on on the creation days, and it and it and it really brings to fore the conflict between uh, the Christian approach to science and the world's approach to science. You've already mentioned that the Christian presupposes God and the and the basically presupposes his creation in order to make sense out of the world. But how do you go about um, uh, approaching? Uh, the study of the creation days, and how does that inform how how we go uh, about formulating our theology? I, I'm thinking one particular instance, one criticism of the day-age theory, for instance, is that they oftentimes, and this is a criticism, I'm not speaking myself because sometimes this is presented unfairly, but several critics will say that the day-age view is, is uh, taking certain scientific theories and imposing them upon the text versus reading the text and then interpreting or formulating their scientific theories based on the text. Could you speak to that a little bit? Right. Uh, those are good questions. I, I think the first thing I'd want to say is that we desperately need a submissive attitude towards Scripture. And I, uh, I'm sympathetic with the people who are very conservative and suspicious of modern society uh, because the the authority of Scripture to speak in its own terms can easily be compromised as people are trying to uh, dialogue with the modern world. the trouble is that we are also called to do enter into that dialogue in some ways as part of the Great Commission. We we want to reach out to people who don't believe as we do, and and in the process we need ourselves to, to either develop uh, answers or to direct people to those who've given answers. Uh, with respect to the day age view. I think there's some justice in in the criticism that you mention, at least for some versions uh, and some presentations of the day-age view, because uh, sometimes I think uh, the the Bible is fit into an existing chronology developed from modern science, and it's read, then Genesis 1 is read too exclusively in terms of the categories of modern science uh, rather than on its own terms. One of the points that I make uh, is that the, God wrote the Bible to address Israelites in an ancient setting where there wasn't modern science, where there wasn't a lot of the developments that we have now. And he wrote it in such a way that Israelites could understand it. Uh, And that's important because it means that with our modern concerns, frequently science teaches us to ask a lot of how questions. Well, uh, how did it come about that the various uh, species and kinds of animals and plants exist today? And, of course, Darwinian theory is presented as a quasi-scientific theory to answer that question. It's a how question. The 
Genesis 1 doesn't dwell on the how, it dwells on the who. Uh, there is very little information about how God did it, other than he did it by speaking, but that doesn't, um, that doesn't say whether or not he used various created means in bringing things about. Uh, my point then is not only that he addressed the Israelites, but he addresses all cultures. And I think there is a subtle pride that enters in in modern cultures influenced by science, that we take pride in our modernity and that we despise the view of other cultures that uh, just have what shall I say, the uh, phenomenal world, the world of ordinary experience. God, I believe in Genesis, and Calvin makes this point, that God is addressing ordinary people uh, to give them a basic knowledge of himself and of his creation of the world. He's not addressing uh, recondite, that's uh, the word that sometimes you use, recondite scientific questions, that is, the specialized questions. Calvin mentions that uh, Calvin knew in his own day, it's interesting, that uh, that Saturn, uh, the planet, was bigger than the moon in absolute size. Uh, but the Bible presents the two great lights, the sun and the moon. And Calvin, so Calvin has to struggle with, well, you know, do we say that the Bible is wrong? Because it's saying that the two great lights are the sun and the moon, and yet Saturn is is bigger in size in absolute terms than the moon. And he solves the problem, I think, quite rightly by pointing out that the Bible is addressing what the ordinary person sees. This, the moon is much bigger in the sky than Saturn. <laughs> it's a disk, and Saturn is just a point of light. It's not addressing astronomical questions of the astronomers trying to figure out, uh, you know, what are the absolute measurements of Saturn if we were right there beside it. Uh, so I think Calvin still is able to stand back from a modern scientific worldview and to understand that God addresses all cultures. And, and if, to me, that's a much more profound wisdom than science itself, which is only a piece of a total life, which includes uh, human beings in all these cultures. So I do think that when you do that, then you're ready to hear the Bible more on its own terms and to understand that it isn't plotting scientific details, but it is giving a very general description which an ordinary person from a tribal culture, say, with no modern scientific knowledge, an ordinary person can understand just as well as you or I can understand. And I even argue in the book uh, that in some respects they might even understand it better because we have this scientific overlay that it's hard for us to realize there is a reality of ordinary experience. And that that is valid, and it's not invalidated. It's just like the moon and Saturn, right, that I used. The moon is bigger than Saturn from the standpoint of what we see, not from the standpoint of absolute measurements. And, but what we see is valid. It's exactly what God designed us to see. 
And so the Bible is absolutely true in saying these are the two great lights. You know, that's what every human being on the face of the world actually sees. It's the language of appearances. That's, uh, or some people call it phenomenal language. It's the language of phenomena. That is absolutely valid language, but it isn't the, it isn't job as the scientific language. To understand that, I think, helps, um, helps us to understand and appreciate the Bible more deeply and not artificially to make links. Now, now I do think it is striking. Uh, let me go on about the day-age theory. It is striking that the six days of Genesis, in terms of chronological order, do match in a fairly striking way the fundamental order of development that is plotted out by uh, mainstream modern science. And some people have been deeply influenced that, have not been, Christ started out not Christians and have noticed the correlation. It made them sit up to the degree that, you know, they followed the trail and eventually the Lord led them to faith. So I don't want to despise that either, but I don't, I want to uh, avoid uh, having us just trying to fit Genesis 1 into modern science rather than to fit modern science into Genesis 1. It works better in the second way, and you do more justice to Scripture. Dr. Poitras, um, as we move from considering a day-age view, I think I think it would be very helpful for our listeners if you could just briefly outline the framework view and the analogical view, because... Um, I basically had to really search that out in books because I've I've actually never heard anyone really articulate either view uh, succinctly and clearly. Could you do that for us and for our listeners? Right. Uh, Well, let me redefine the day-age view first. The day-age view says that each day in the creation week of the six, each day corresponds to to an age, to, in effect, geologic periods. Um, The analogical view is like that, except that it doesn't focus on the word day alone, um, as if day could mean geological age. But it focuses on the entire passage and says the passage presents God as working in six work days. And his work days are analogous to our work days. It's called the analogical view because of that. And a fundamental verse for the analogical view is uh, Exodus uh, 20, verse 11, which explicitly says that uh, Israel is to to work six days and rest on the Sabbath because in six days God made the heaven and earth and rested on the seventh day. That's uh, setting up the analogy. But the people that, and you say, well, how does that differ from uh, a 24-hour day view? It differs because it's saying God's work is analogous to our human work and rest, but it's not on the same level. And typically, the analogical day view wants to point out that the seventh day the day of God's rest in Genesis 2, 1 to 3, uh, is eternal. That is, it goes on forever. God doesn't recommence creating. Now, he continues his providential activity, but that uh, that's on the basis of a finished work of creation. <clears throat> and I think that's basically right, that the seventh day 
God's seventh day is everlasting. And when we enter into our final rest, and, you know, Hebrews 4 uh, does use the language of Sabbath for the consummation state, uh, that state for us will be everlasting as well. So our final rest that we look forward to is a final, as it were, day of rest, but it's not a 24-hour day. So the analogical view, the point is that it's saying that the God works in six of his work days, rests on a seventh day. That's the fundamental pattern that human beings imitate, but we imitate it on our level. So that the days that you're talking about need not be measured by, when measured by some uh, scientific standard, need not be the same uh, length. That's the analogical view. The framework view it goes a step further and says that the organization of the days is not necessarily chronological, that it's literary. But that the, uh, the original framework view, as advocated by Nicholas Ritterboss and Meredith Klein, did clearly insist that the actions, the events of God's creating were real and were actions in space and time. That's important because if you don't insist on that, then Genesis 1 can kind of be dissolved into a very, very general statement to the effect that God created everything. So so the framework view does insist these are real actions of creation, supernatural actions, but uh, they are not necessarily in chronological order. And uh, typically this view also sees the the creation of the luminaries on the fourth day as essentially the same event as the creation of light on the first day, so that those two things are are collapsed. I don't agree with that, um, but it's worth uh, respectfully listening to the people who advocate this view. And as you know... Uh, in the book, I go through, I don't know how many views it is. It's uh, seven, ten. It's quite a few views, some of which I believe have are less plausible. But my point is, let's listen respectfully to all the Christians from past generations who have wanted genuinely to submit to the authority of Scripture and genuinely to interact with science, and they've come up with this whole spectrum of views. And I think it's wise then to reflect respectfully on those, to listen respectfully to them, even though not all the views can be right, but to understand as finite creatures, God hasn't given us uh, every bit of information that we might like to have, and so we may be in a situation where we say, I prefer this one view because it seems to do the most justice both to Genesis 1 in particular and to what modern science is uh, looking at, but that other views are possible. So I single out the mature creation view and the analogical view uh, as the most 
attractive views, I think. We haven't mentioned mature creation, but mature creation is saying God created the world maybe in, in a very short time, something like six 24-hour days, but that at the end of that period, it was mature. That is, it was like Adam created as an adult. Uh, Adam, as if he's newly created, looks older, right? He looks mature, and likewise, the whole universe, by analogy, could look mature, uh, even though it was newly created. Uh, that view uh, is one that helps to reconcile both the Genesis account with uh, the appearance that modern science is finding that some things look very old. Mm. I have a question in, in res- uh, uh, conjunction with that, Dr. Porter. Some skeptics, some, uh, th- this isn't me uh, speaking here, but speaking as perhaps devil's advocate, um, would say that, well, if God indeed created things with the appearance of age, and here we are as scientists, you know, uh, struggling and trying to uh, figure out God's creation, uh, and it looks like that God's creation is very old, when in fact it's really not very old. Would that not be an act of deception on the part of God? Yeah, that's a good question, and I think it does bother people. It, it and I want to respect the fact that it bothers people, and some pe- people feel they can't really go for a mature creation view uh, because it seems to imply that God can't be trusted. And I think that's a very good point. I think we must insist that God can be trusted. That's clear from Scripture, and it's clear because it's redemptively relevant, right? Trust in Christ is uh, the way in which we come to be saved. So the issue of trusting God and believing that God doesn't deceive us is a very, very important one. But I think if you set science in the context of the biblical worldview, you see that there are inevitably limitations to science, both in the far past and in the far future. What's going to happen in the future? Well, we all know from the Bible that Christ is going to come again. And when he comes again, there will be a new heaven and a new earth. There will be some kind of radical transfiguration of the present heaven and earth. And that is in spite of the fact that if you listen to secular scientists, they'll talk about billions and trillions of years in the future and the heat death of the universe and how everything is going to wind down. Uh, they're extrapolating into a future that will never be because Christ will return, right? But their extrapolations make sense given a sort of if Christ didn't come back, if the universe went along more or less according to the pattern of the present governing word of God, you see, right? Then what would happen And these extrapolations do make sense in terms of current science. Well, do the same thing, not with respect to the future, but with respect to the past. Extrapolate into the past. Science with respect to the past depends on the same assumptions of extrapolation. That is, that the present order of things, the present form of scientific laws, is true indefinitely into the past. But when you come to the week of creation, you can't make that assumption. 
So I think it's it's overweening pride on the part of science to mm. think that it can extrapolate back either into the creation week or forward to the second coming. Mm-hmm. Those are limits on both ends. Now it may nevertheless be that God brought about his works in the six days of creation in a manner that's compatible with scientific law. But you can't have a dogmatic certainty about that. You can't say it's unfair of God to bring about a mature creation. I don't think you can do that. Mm. Because your whole conception of science rests on the commitments that God has made within this order. Right? It's, it, it, it's a commitment once creation is complete at the end of the six days, seed time and harvest, summer and winter, uh, light and darkness will not cease. You know, that I'm quoting, of course, uh, or paraphrasing from God's promise to Noah, but I think that's similar to his commitment to govern the world in a consistent way. That's the foundation for science, but at the same time, it's limited as long as the earth remains. He says that to Noah, right? Yeah, yeah. And uh, Jesus says, heaven and earth will pass away. My words will not pass away. There is something that's more stable than the present order of scientific law. Mm-hmm. And you see that, I think that flips things or ought to for a Christian. And again, my point is that see science in the context of scripture rather than the other way around, right? Science becomes a limited thing within this order that God has established, but that order is not absolutely eternal because the second coming is at the end of it and the six days of creation are are uh, behind it at the beginning. Here, here's a question that I don't, it, it's half serious, half, half not serious, but the, is the second law of thermodynamics exclusive to the post-lapsarian order? Yeah. That's a good question. Some people Could you explain that? Is, because I'm sure most right. people don't know what I'm asking. <laughs> the, the first law of thermodynamics is the conservation of energy, that energy is neither created nor destroyed, except by God. You know, you've got you to have, have something at the beginning, right? Right. Uh, so the second law says that the amount of free energy that's available to do useful work continually decreases. Uh, that is that everything degenerates into heat. And uh, there are technical reasons why, but it does seem to be true pretty universally, you know, as the scientists are observing things uh, within this order. The reason why I suspect that it's not, and people say that that's, it's the, the universe being subject to decay in Romans 8. That's a reference to the second law. I don't think so. I think that subject to decay is related to the fall. Mm. But why don't I see the second law as related to the fall? Because there were sun and moon and stars before the fall. And the sun, moon, and stars operate, this is again, technical part of science, that they operate in terms of the second law of thermodynamics, as well as the first. So I think that order was already in place. And if you think about it, eventually, as we know, with again, within the present order, the sun has uh, is burning hydrogen fuel. It's like a hydrogen bomb's going off in its core. 
eventually it will use up its hydrogen and at that point it will become a nova and the uh, it will expand and the earth would be roasted now that's that's extrapolation remember we talked about that mm-hmm. that'll never happen because Christ will come i'm mm-hmm. confident right because the bible has told us and again you have to be a robust christian to see that the bible's is more ultimate than science at that point mm-hmm. and to say that the sun will not burn out because Christ will come first. But the point is, that is a testimony to the fact that this present order was never intended by God to be absolutely permanent. I'm convinced, though the Bible doesn't address this very directly, that God had intended Adam to be on probation and then to work at his task of filling the earth and subduing it, at some point, even apart from the fall, at some point, that work would have been completed and there would be a transition to a consummation, to a new heaven and a new earth. And that, and, and that, that new heaven and new earth wouldn't be, have the limitations, you see, of the present sun system because the sun is limited in the amount of energy mm-hmm. that it can give. Eventually, it will burn out. Now, some that that's very helpful, and and thank you. And the Lord will be the light for the earth at that time. So that's really interesting. We won't need the sun even in the new right. heaven, the new earth. One thing people might not know about you, at least outside of uh, Westminster, is that in uh, previously you were assistant professor of mathematics at Fresno State, and that you've done significant study in the in mathematics, receiving a PhD from Harvard, and you do spend some uh, time in this book on mathematics. How uh, the philosophy of of numbers is very interesting. Uh, it's very difficult, all the same. How is the approach an approach to mathematics uh, similar to an approach to the natural sciences uh, in terms of requiring a god in order to make sense of it? Because ki- people like Kuiper would think that um, there's an antithesis, except areas like uh, math and counting those sorts of things were neutral, and you could approach them neutrally as an unbeliever. Is that possible? Do you agree with that approach? Or do you see it being very similar to natural sciences? Yeah, I think it's similar to natural science. I think there's no neutrality. I think Kuiper just, uh, it was one of his limitations of his vision. Although I'm not sure that he didn't say qualify it in some way, because it's easier on some level for non-Christians to get on board mathematics or physics, let's say, than to get on uh, politics or ethics, right? Uh, uh, but with things that are that are more centrally related to human beings, and there are there are ways I think in which uh, a a idolatrous substitute for God affects different areas differently. I mentioned this sort of impersonal, the idolatry that I see in modern science is the impersonal substitute for a personal God, okay? So scientific law becomes an impersonal mechanism out there. But in many respects, that will be very like the true God. And this is the the power of counterfeiting. A counterfeit $20 bill has to look enough like the real thing that it can suck people in. Similarly, the devil's counterfeits in religion have to be enough like the real thing 
that they're plausible. Science, based on impersonal mechanistic law, does sort of work. That is, people can go and do their work and come up with results which are very like what a Christian would come up with. It's because the counterfeit is close enough to the true, particularly when you're dealing with realms that are less intimately involved with persons, you see. And I think mathematics is that way. The thing I'd say positively about mathematics is the same thing, same argument I did with natural science, that the laws of mathematics have divine attributes. Omnipotence, omnipresence, eternality, and so on, they have, and they're rational, right? They originate in the personal God. And, they, and, and the mathematicians, the, point, the other point is that mathematicians assume that. They don't admit it to themselves, but they rely on God all the time. But it's an idolatrous reliance when they won't give him thanks. Hmm. Right? They rely on him, but don't give him thanks. That's Romans 1. Yeah, absolutely. Hmm. Dr. Poitras, can I throw a question in since we're right on this topic? Um, you talk about the, the attributes of God that are reflected in mathematics. Are, are mathematical equations um, eternally necessary in the sense that uh, are they, are they uh, contingent realities or are they necessary realities? I'm, I'm thinking particularly in reference to uh, Nicholas Wolstersdorf, uh, I think in his book on universals, has made the point that uh, true mathematical equations are are necessarily true, um, independent of God's existence. Uh, whether God existed or not, or had a mind or not, uh, that that simple mathematical equations and mathematical laws would necessarily be, uh, whether there were minds to know them or think them uh, or not. Would you have a response to that? Yeah, I'd say it's nonsense. It's utter nonsense because the, these very laws show God. Hmm. How can you talk about God not existing when God is manifest in the very attributes of these laws? That is so nonsensical. I think they would but want some I sort would, of... No, go but ahead. I would say the issue of necessity versus contingency, that is a more delicate matter. You see, the, the existence of God for me is... Uh, God must exist. He is what he is, right? And he's the explanation for everything else. But he didn't have to create a world. If he, he didn't, because he was sufficient to himself, the Father and the Holy Spirit. If he does create a world, it doesn't have to be a world exactly like ours. So what are the limits? Well, we are creatures within this world, so we don't know completely. And I think it's a trap of philosophy to imagine that we can be on the level of the mind of God and tell him exactly what his limits are. I do think whatever world God creates has to be consistent with his character, right? So it, it, it does have to be numerically in harmony with the Trinity, and it has to be uh, in harmony with his truthfulness and so on. But we are not God, so we can't say exactly what the limits are. But it isn't true that God can do anything that we can conceive of. He can't lie. He can't deny himself. 
He can't cease to be himself. He can't change. There's lots of things that he can't do because of his character. Everything he does is consistent with his character. But his, he can do whatever he wants. He does whatever he wishes, right? That's from Scripture. So we can... And that's... That uh, that means, right, that he's free to create or not to create and create uh, worlds with variety. And so I can't say exactly what the limits would be with respect to mathematics. Sure. But, but I do think that the mathematics that we know shows who God is. So Walterstorff just is, is an idolater when he's using that kind of language. I mean, right. I know that he's a committed Christian believer, but we all fall into the idolatry from time to time when we don't give God the glory. And so I wish that he just hadn't, he, he understood that the attributes of mathematical law are divine attributes and reveal God who is and who, uh, it's nonsensical to talk about those, those mathematics being the same and not having the same attributes. You know, what kind of, what kind of language is that? It just doesn't make sense. So in one sense, we could say something like um, there's, there's an eternal necessity of, of, uh, of three, for instance. If we, said, if we took the number three, we could say the number three is eternally necessary, but o- only in as much as it is rooted in the very personal existence of God himself. That's right. Okay. So there's so we can say there's an eternal necessity of numeric values, but only in as much as those are in in God Himself personally as such. Yeah. Yes, that's right. And and God, and God, of course, knows in His eternal knowledge not only everything about the world that He has created, but about all possible worlds. Right. Right. So right. consider. The, that would include the mathematics that would belong to all possible worlds. So, in some sense, that's already known, even if there's no, uh, if God doesn't, in fact, decide to create the worlds. But, you know, the thing about this is that we're at the very edge of what we as human beings can, are given to understand. Hmm. And uh, so, we do have to respect the fact we are finite and God is not. And uh, But... But I do think we have to. We also have to affirm God has given us a genuine knowledge of Himself, and He is one God in three persons, and so that oneness and threeness is absolutely eternal and necessary. Doctor Boitheris, I, I just had one more question. Um, it seems like any time you get in a discussion with um, unbelievers about these issues and issues that you've written in your book, the age of the Earth becomes kind of the focal point, young earth, old earth views. I was wondering if you could talk about um, how you would answer someone, if you were witnessing to an unbeliever, how you would answer that question um, in a debate if, if someone was bringing forth scientific uh, quote-unquote facts that prove that the earth is billions of years old. Um, and also, if you could just speak briefly about what you think of um, Bishop Usher's work, his Annals of the World, and his um, uh, use of the Bible and sources to basically date the earth. Right. Well, um, Bishop Usher's work depended on the assumption that there were no gaps in the genealogical lists that are found in Genesis 5 
and Genesis uh, 11. Uh, but since then, um, it's W.H. Uh, Green and Warfield, Building on Green, have observed that uh, if we look at other genealogies, we see uh, instances where there are gaps. So I don't think we can dogmatically uh, reason for uh, uh, backwards to an absolute date for the creation of Adam and Eve. Even if we could, then the six days are still days, God's work days. That's the analogical view, right? And the seventh day goes on forever. So I think we still do not have Genesis 1 telling us how long the uh, the six days are. Uh, and that still then allows that it might be a very long time from the standpoint of scientific reckoning, but it's still, it's six days from the standpoint of the pattern of work and rest, which is a very, not only a divine pattern, but then a pattern that we imitate in our human work. So I have no objection to talking about uh, work days uh, six days that way, as long as we understand we're addressing it in terms of ordinary human life rather than the recondite uh, conceptions of time measurement that crop up in modern science. So I, I don't think that that's a genuine problem. If, if I was talking to an unbeliever, I would either take that view or I would bring up mature creation. Uh, before I understood this analogical view as well as I now do. Uh, when I was still a college undergraduate, I was at Caltech, and so this kind of thing came up. And I would tell people the mature creation view of saying Adam was created mature, maybe the whole universe was created mature. And the usual reaction to that was, oh, I never thought of that. Because it shows the way in which science is limited to the present order. Right? It puts God in charge, even though it's not my favorite view, mind you. But I think it makes a point in communicating to non-Christians that you're making assumptions that the present order of things that God providentially controls, that that goes on forever. But in fact, that's just an assumption. <laughs> and if God did it differently, who's to... Who's to say he can't? <laughs> right. And so I found that what happened to some of my dialogue partners was that they went on to other questions. They saw, yeah, you can make sense of the Bible in a way that respects uh, the dis common grace discoveries of modern science. Uh, I should say, in addition, because I think there's always the danger that we accept modern science and its results at face value. Right. That that has to, it's the product of finite human beings, fallen human beings, corrupted, I believe, by the idolatry in which they <clears throat> regard scientific law as impersonal. So <clears throat> that has to be critically inspected, but it isn't as if we can't respect what even non-Christians have done, made in the image of God, and uh, to admire what the, the discoveries that show the wonder and beauty of God and his creation. So I'm desiring that Christians would cease to fear science, would would use it as a platform for glorifying God, but not uncritically. And 
that goes back, I think, to Jim, was it your earlier observation of the, the watertight compartments of science and religion, mm. that there is too much temptation, I think, and tendency either to be driven, if you're a scientist particularly, or if you're fascinated by science, either to be driven by that and fit the Bible into it, or if you're driven by the Bible, which, of course, I'm arguing you ought to be, to just give up and say, well, you know, who cares, because modern science is not uh, infallible. Well, it isn't infallible, but it's useful <laughs> as uh, it's one area where we should be praising and serving God. Yeah. What about what do you do with somebody like um, Ken Ham, uh, who you know is arguing for um, uh, vehemently that the Bible absolutely teaches? Um, that the uh, Earth is, you know, however many years, and you know things like uh, of that nature. How do we deal with, you know, well-meaning brothers like that, um, but perhaps maybe misguided in in certain respects? Uh, good question, Jim. Uh, the first thing I'd want to say is I deeply respect people like that because I see the driving force behind them as the desire that scripture will be foundational and not what other people say, either modern scientists or anybody else. And I respect that. And I think, you know, if that's as far as you can get, then uh, you're still uh, a faithful servant of God. I think what I regret about it is that I don't think that, you know, I don't know Ken Ham personally, but for people like him, that I wish that they listened more carefully and respectfully, respectfully to particularly the analogical day view. Uh, the seventh day, I think, is a real problem for them because I think that seventh day of God's rest goes on forever. And so just to dogmatically say, we know that the six days, what they look like in terms of, of of modern scientific reckoning is, I think, going beyond Scripture. They don't recognize it. If that's the only thing that they can see, then they have to stay where they are to remain loyal to Scripture as they see it. But I, I do think that they're misunderstanding Scripture. The paradox is that they're misunderstanding it as I see it, and I want to speak respectfully here, because they've absorbed too much of modern science. They're too much driven by it, I believe. If they could only read Genesis like one of these pre-scientific cultures, then I think they would set, they would see and understand these are God's this is God's pattern of work and rest. 6 days uh, followed by a seventh of rest, which is to govern your work as a human being as work and rest, and that the point is on that level and not on the level of modern scientific measurements, which, of course, don't exist for, in a pre-scientific culture. So I think some of their problems would actually be relieved if they, if they trusted Scripture even more than they do. Mm. Dr. Poitras, we have uh, one last question for you. 
um, and that is some. It's a little more uh, broadly speaking. Just wondering if you could comment on the place of some of your observations in regard to the the theological underpinnings of mathematics and other hard sciences, and how that relates to primary and secondary education in the sciences. I think uh, it's easy sometimes to for us Christians to say, yeah, we, we should acknowledge uh, God as back of everything, as the, as the bottom of all investigation. But in what, in what sense do you really uh, craft that and, and work that into a, into a thoroughgoing Christian education in the sciences for children and for college students? Yes. Well, I think a lot of work needs to be done. There's a work by James Nichol, Mathematics is God Silent, that particularly takes up the whole field of mathematics and uh, discusses a lot of what it means to see mathematics from a Christian point of view. I endeavor to do it some in in my book, Redeeming Science, chemistry, physics, biology, mathematics, to give examples of the way in which God in his beauty and in his Trinitarian character manifests uh, images, his character, even in details of chemistry and physics and mathematics, particularly as I see the theme of imaging uh, taking place there. I, I better not take time to develop that thoroughly, but I think mathematics, physics, chemistry would look different if we put them in the context of a personal God. And that isn't being done. It isn't being done really nearly enough, I believe, even in the context of specifically Christian education in Christian schools. And I should comment, there is a a brief note in Redeeming Science that from a political point of view, I think what we need is uh, opportunity for a par- parental controlled education uh, without prejudice uh, financially in favor of state controlled schools. Uh, you know, the present tax system is such that, that except for the very rich, uh, alternative parent-controlled education is is not a possibility or it's not it really can't take place on an equitable basis and that persecutes minorities and that that's happened ever since state-controlled education was started uh, no matter who's in control you know if you have a, a country that's heavily heavily Christian in the state church as you had in Europe then the education is influenced by that, and you teach Anglicanism, for instance, in the state-controlled schools in England, or did in a previous generation. Uh, That was oppressive, it seems to me, and unjust, uh, just as uh, the present domination of secularist and God-denying worldviews is unjust. And uh, you ought to get the state out of education. But that's Mm. another... It's another. Uh, no, I I appreciate uh, your comments. <laughs> uh, what do we do in terms of teachers? Uh, I mean, is it enough? Is it enough? I know this is not. It's not my area of expertise. But is it enough to simply to say uh, anybody who knows math and is a Christian then is qualified to teach math in a uniquely Christian environment, or or should there be something more purposeful uh, behind that uh, in, in our preparation? I, I, 
I think it has to be something more purposeful, partly because our existing system of education trains people in wrong ways. They get a lot of knowledge, which is true knowledge, but without seeing its coherence with who God is as a person, as an infinite person. And so even Christians, and for me, I can say personally, I went to Caltech as a Christian, and I went to Harvard for my doctor work in math as a Christian, and I tried to think Christianly in these areas. And looking back, I didn't succeed nearly enough. Hmm. Uh, I've thought about this for 30 years since, and I continue to learn things that I think should reconfigure the way we think about science and mathematics. So I think there's a lot of work to be done, and it can't be assumed that just because I'm a Christian that my mind is reformed automatically in these areas. Yes. Hence the Semper Reformanda. We always need yes. to be reformed by God's Word in every area of thought. Even, even if we're in a Christian school, under a Christian teacher, there's always more work to be done. That's very helpful. We thank you so much for joining us. Uh, I really want to point people back to uh, Dr. Poitras's other works, uh, several excellent books. I can, I'll name just a few. Under Dan- Understanding Dispensationalists, The Shadow of Christ and the Law of Moses. Nick, uh, you've mentioned uh, Beale's work on the temple. This this book also has several interesting chapters, also a chapter on um, the law's role and and uh, uh, retributive punishment, uh, the 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 effectiveness of prisons, etc. Very good book, as well as God-centered biblical interpretation. Several books. You just check uh, Doctor Poitras's name on the Westminster Bookstore, and you'll find all sorts of wonderful things you should read. You can also visit us at reformedforum.org, and you can subscribe to our programs. You can uh, subscribe to. Uh, uh, the Reform Media Review and see what's going on. Also visit the calendar for any up, upcoming conference news. You can get all that done at reformedforum.org. We want to thank you for listening. Uh, we, we pray that this would be a blessing to you and hope that the church would be edified through this. I think this has been excellent. And we hope that you'll be back with us next time on Christ the Center. <laughs>